Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be continuing our chat about Cleopatra, the uh, the pharaoh of Egypt who ruled in the late first century BCE. We obviously started a story last week, so if you haven't already got across that one, do yourself a favour, go back and listen to it before listening to this one. And you know, apologies to anyone who is listening to half-assed history on shuffle. If that's a, I think I don't know if people listen to podcasts on random, but I mean, if you do, all, all these multiple part episodes are really messing them up. But uh, look, who knows? Maybe some people enjoy trying to piece to, piece stuff together like it's a bloody Agatha Christie novel or something. So look, let's ruin it for them, shall we? Well, let's uh, let's recap last week so you don't have to try to piece anything together and remind ourselves of where we left off. Uh, last week we talked about how Cleopatra rose to power to become the pharaoh of Ptolemaic Egypt as the daughter of Pharaoh Ptolemy the Twelfth. She was part of a long line of incestuous Greek monarchs that had ruled Egypt since Alexander the Great conquered the region, uh, and his general Ptolemy the First crowned himself pharaoh back in the fourth century BCE. And after effectively ruling in her own right for a while, Cleopatra got in a conflict with her little brother, who may have also been her husband, uh, Ptolemy the Thirteenth, and the two of them fought each other for the Egyptian throne. And this conflict became known as the Alexandrian Civil War. And it ended, of course, in Cleopatra's favour, thanks to the intercession of none other than Julius Caesar. Surprise cameo appearance from him, who not only took Cleopatra's side in the war, but also hopped into bed with Cleopatra and the two of them had a son. They had a kid together called Caesarian, or his actual name was Ptolemy, but he became known as Caesarian. Um, and after this, uh, after the Alexandrian Civil War had been finished up, had finished up, Cleopatra uh, travelled to Rome to try to shore up her position and the position of her young son, who you know she was trying to sort of uh, engineer a position for him as uh, as her co-ruler here. And in doing so, in heading over to Rome and, and trying to uh, bolster Egypt's position, uh, Egypt, which had more or less been a client state of the Roman Republic for, Republic for a long time, it was drawn a lot further within Rome's sphere of influence, and it'll be a lot further inside that sphere of influence before the end of this episode as well. Let me tell you this, and a lot of that, of course, is due to the uh, the best efforts, well, and and the worst efforts as well as as Cleopatra. She had a huge role, a huge influence in uh, in what happened in Egypt. Uh, towards the end of the Roman Republic, the beginning of the Roman Empire. But we'll get all across that in due course. Anyway, she's over in Rome when uh, Caesar was assassinated. She heads back to Egypt. Uh, she killed another one of her younger brothers to secure her position as pharaoh and uh, began to rule alongside her three-year-old son, Caesarian. And that's where we left our story off last week. That's where we'll be picking it up from today. But a couple of things before we begin. I want to remind you that this is... Uh, not the ancient Egypt you, you first think of, you know, the pyramids and the mummification, whatever else. No, no, no. Even 2,000 years ago, talking about Cleopatra's time, the pyramids were already ancient. They were ancient relics of a bygone era. So we're not talking about the, uh, you know, the old kingdom and the stuff that you more traditionally associate with ancient Egypt. Egypt is ruled by Greeks, not Egyptians. The native Egyptian people are under the thumb of the Greeks, who obviously came at the behest of Alexander years and years ago, hundreds of years ago. Um, and the you know the the political, economic, and cultural affairs in Egypt heavily dominated by the ruling Greek class have been for about three centuries. Uh, and secondly, of course, it's worth remembering that we're before the Common Era once again this week, so we're counting years down and not up. If we start in 44 BCE, it's followed by 43 BCE. You know how it works by now, but worth reminding you, of course. And finally. Um, I just want to say thanks once again to Scott Russell and the others who sent in Cleopatra as a topic suggestion, including uh, Fabian Wiesner, right, who sent it in about two and a half hours before last week's episode went live. So on Sunday evening last week, I got an email from Fabian saying like, oh, you know, it'd be great, maybe get across Cleopatra. Two and a half, episode, two and a half hours later, there's an episode live on Cleopatra. So, I mean, how's that, for, how's that for turnaround, Fabian, old mate? Didn't think you'd be getting what you wanted just, you know, a couple of hours after suggesting it, did you? Anyway, let's get on with it uh, here. Let's get stuck into the second half of the life story of Cleopatra, the seventh Philippator. Here we go. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back, of course, to 44 BCE. That's where we left our mate Cleopatra. Cleopatra last week in the wake of Caesar's assassination, as I said. So after Caesar is knocked off, she hoons back to Egypt and she herself knocks off, well, I don't know, she probably didn't do it herself, but she got someone else to do it, knocked off uh, Ptolemy the 14th, her younger brother. She sets up Caesarian on the throne as Ptolemy the 15th and she gets on with the business of ruling Egypt 
effectively again in her own right. You know, she has no meaningful opposition to her rule, no errant brothers around to challenge her. So she's off swishing the willow about and ruling with her characteristic effectiveness with her son in name at her side, but he's three years old. So, you know, I don't know how much of an influence he's having on the day-to-day running of the uh, of the kingdom there. Anyway, all the, you know, positive and effective and very successful years that Cleopatra had as the leader of Egypt. I mean, it's, you know, worth mentioning, but broadly speaking, pretty boring. Don't want to hear about the peace and prosperity. No, we want the crispy bits of history here. We want the, you know, the blood and the guts and the horrible murder. And I tell you what, there are some crispy bits coming for Cleopatra and no mistake, because she does come back, she does settle in and she does a good job of ruling. But to put it very mildly, Julius Caesar's assassination was a very big bloody deal. And there were obviously some, you know, pretty severe consequences on a wide political scale in both Rome and more broadly speaking across the Mediterranean. In 43 BCE, the second triumvirate was formed, and this was formed between Octavian, who was Caesar's grandnephew and heir, you might remember him from last week, Mark Antony, uh, who we'll we'll come to in a minute, and a bloke whose name was Marcus Emilius Lepidus. Uh, These three were close allies of Caesar. We'll mainly be talking about Octavian and Mark Antony today because Lepidus was... He's a bit of a spare part in the triumvirate, it seems. And and look, honestly, really, we'll mainly be talking about Mark Antony or, or to give him his proper Roman name, Marcus Antonius, um, because Antony is the bloke who was most closely connected to Cleopatra throughout the later years of her life. But I wanted you to meet the three of them in order of importance for this story. You know, Mark Antony, obviously, Octavian second, and then a, a very distant third, Lepidus, who barely comes into the story whatsoever. Anyway, these three, they get together, form the second triumvirate, and they go about trying to bring those who conspired to assassinate Caesar to justice, right? And so begins the Liberators' Civil War. And this is where Cleopatra gets looped in. After returning to Egypt, after getting stuck in with ruling her realm, she is brought back into Mediterranean politics, into Roman politics, uh, when the when both the Triumvirate and the Liberatores, right, the faction that killed Caesar, both of them get in touch with her, asking for help in fighting the other. As I've said, Egypt is basically a client state of the Roman Republic. It's, I guess you could call it a vassal or a protectorate, whatever you want to call it, very closely aligned with Rome. And so both of these different Roman factions, they actually get in touch with Cleopatra and they say, hey, mate, would you mind giving us a hand with, you know, these these bastards that we're fighting? A bloke named Gaius Cassius Longinus, right, one of the ringleaders of the plot to kill Caesar, he had the cheek to ask Cleopatra for help. I mean, it wasn't a secret that she was very close to Caesar, and this goose is bloody getting on the blower and saying, "How hey, would you mind, you know, I know we, we killed the bloke you were rooting, but would you mind giving us a hand, you know, going after these blokes who are trying to avenge his death? I mean, she, you, you can guess which side she picked, eh? She made up some nonsense excuse and sent a liberator says, oh, you know, I'm just so busy, got so much on at the moment, I'm not going to be able to get stuck into this war. Would have loved to help you out there. Would have loved to help you fight the people trying to avenge the death of the bloke that I was shagging. No worries at all. No, no, no. Of course... She firmly sides with Triumvirate, um, you know, unsurprisingly. Uh, she she palms off Cassius, says, oh, no, no, mate, I'm not getting involved here, and then immediately gets involved with the other team, sends off both soldiers and ships to fight for those who are trying to avenge Caesar's assassination. Now, this proves to be a bad move, however, because the troops that she sent to fight were actually captured by Cassius, and then and then on top of that, one of her governors defected to Cassius as well and handed over a bunch of Cleopatra ships. So not a great start for her at all. Um, not from just sort of a practical sense, but also as you'll see, it got her into some trouble later on, based on what happened once she mobilised her uh, her armed forces like this. But I tell you what. Cleopatra, she's not having it. She's absolutely not having this. She says, well, if you want something done, you do it yourself. So she rolls up her sleeves, gathers another fleet, boards it personally this time. She goes along with them so she can uh, oversee it firsthand and uh, sails up to Greece to meet up with Octavian and Antony. Bugger this for a joke. She says, I'm going to get stuck in come hell or high water. And it turns out that it was indeed high water that came. There was a storm that badly damaged her fleet. And as she limped into Greece, right, the battle had already been fought and won. She was too late to help the triumvirate fight the Liberatorius. So she's zero for two here. Not a great innings for Cleopatra this time around, but ultimately didn't matter too much. The triumvirate forces crushed the armies of the Liberatorius uh, at the massive Battle of the uh, Battle of Philippi 
in 42 BCE. There were over 200,000 soldiers doing battle at this uh, at this conflict. It was it was absolutely massive, and uh, ultimately, the triumvirates uh, they uh, they triumph. They, they they absolutely they thrash the pants off of the uh, Liberatores here. And Cassius and Brutus, two of Caesar's most prominent uh, assassins, they end up committing suicide after the battle because of how badly the Liberatores uh, lost. And that was that. The Liberator, the, the Liberator Civil War was over. Cleopatra, well, you know, she hadn't played much of a part, to be honest, but she did her best. And don't we always say that it's the thought that counts? Cleopatra, the weird aunt with the ugly Christmas jumper, turning up too late to the celebration. But, you know, are we going to give her credit for, for the thought that counts? Well, she actually ended up getting a fair bit more than uh, than credit for for turning up uh, from Mark Antony, at least. Well, there was actually some suspicion uh, cast her way initially, but that swiftly resolved itself in a very different direction, as we'll see. But let's talk about Mark Antony here, and let's talk about what his growing role in, in the life story of Cleopatra is at this uh, at this point, at the end of the Liberator Civil War. So, Cleopatra's involvement in this war wasn't necessarily militarily important uh, because, again, she turned up too late. But it was important for a different reason because it was the beginning of her connection to Mark Antony, which was, you know, without wanting to spoil anything, a fair bit a fair bit longer lasting than her affair with Caesar. Mark Antony was very keen to meet with Cleopatra. They'd met before a couple of times. Last week I mentioned the first time they'd met when she was just 14. Mark Antony at that point was 28. But now he's interested in getting to know her better for a few different reasons. Firstly, Cleopatra is more or less the most powerful Roman client state in the Eastern Mediterranean, at least. And Egypt was a very big part of Antony's, and I guess therefore Rome's, plans for future Roman wars and expansions. So that's number one. Antony wants to get on side with Cleopatra because she's a very, very powerful client state of Rome. Number two, however, there is some doubt, this suspicion that I mentioned, there is some doubt that needed clearing up about Cleopatra's exact role in the Liberator Civil War. Why had the soldiers that she'd sent off first ended up under Cassius? What about all those ships that had defected? Why did you say that you'd help Cleopatra and then you'd turn up late with the story about all these storms? Antony wanted to investigate Cleopatra's true loyalties and find out exactly what was going on with her. You know, because you think about it from his perspective, it's a little bit suspicious. She, she said, yep, I'll come and help. None of her troops arrived. None of her ships arrived. She turns up too late with stories of a storm. What's going on there? He wants to find out. But thirdly, and perhaps most importantly for the continuation of this story, not to put too fine a point on it, he reckoned he might be in with a shot with Cleopatra, to be honest. I mean, after all, Caesar's dead, her brothers are dead, she's single, she's ready to mingle, let's have a crack here, he thinks to himself. So he sends off letters inviting her to come and meet him. Cleopatra, initially, she's not interested. She won't go and meet him, even after he more or less takes control of the entire eastern half of the Roman Republic. It was Octavian who took control of the west. Even after he does this, right, Cleopatra's like, no, 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 I'm busy. I've got stuff to do in Egypt. Once she's back there, she's ruling and taking care of stuff, and she's not interested in meeting Antony. So eventually Antony has to go to all sorts of lengths to actually get her to, to come and see him. He sends a personal envoy to Alexandria to personally beg her to come, and eventually she goes, oh, all right, bloody hell, I'll come, whatever, maybe we could fun. Get the pleasure barge ready, boys. We're off to Turkey, or I uh, should I say, I guess not Turkey. Uh, it's not Turkey yet. It'll be Turkey. I mean, it'll be called Turkey about 2,000 years. I've got a bloke here doing a podcast, just doing it for clarity for him. Anyway, Antony, he has he set up shop in Tarsus, right, in Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, as Cleopatra has helpfully pointed out for us here. So she gets ready to head over and meet him in 41 BCE. So a couple of years on down the track now. But let me tell you this. She does not pull any punches whatsoever when it comes to travelling in style. She has an absolutely magnificent ship. It's huge, this thing. It's called the Thalamagos. It is absolutely enormous. It's essentially just a floating palace, right? Um, and we talked last night, we talked last uh, last episode about how Cleopatra loved to put on a show. She loved, you know, all the, the opulence and grandeur of her, her title and her position. And she doesn't muck around after arriving in Tarsos on this huge big pleasure, uh, on this pleasure ship, right? 
She holds massive feasts for Antony aboard her ship. She invites all the all the uh, the hobnobs to come on board and enjoy themselves with food and wine and dancing and singing and all sorts of stuff. And and everyone, everyone's just so impressed. This this lavish, opulent entry that this queen has made up going up the river towards Tarsos and inviting everyone on board this ship. It's incredible, right? You know, completely befitting a queen of her stature. And she kind of shows Antony up, to be honest, because Antony, a couple of nights after Cleopatra's arrived, he's like, all right, well, I'll, you know, I'll return the favour. I'll organise a feast for you as well. Everyone comes off the ship, goes goes onto land and uh, and turns up at this feast that Antony's put together. And it's, it's garbage, mate. Compared, I mean, yeah, probably it wasn't that bad, but compared to what, uh, compared to the dues that uh, Cleopatra's been throwing on the uh, on her ship here, oh, my goodness, mate. He'd, he'd been absolutely put to shame by Cleopatra. Anyway, anyway. Against the backdrop of these festivities and, you know, all the all the dancing, singing, drinking and eating that everyone's doing, having a great time, in the midst of all of this, Antony and Cleopatra, they get down to brass tacks, right? And they have a couple of meetings, a few tete-a-tetes there, and they clear the air because Cleopatra gives a full account of herself during the Liberator Civil War. She clears that issue up. Antony is... Is, is satisfied that her story makes sense. You know, Cassius nicked these troops. There was the, the governor who defected and then the storm came up and look, she was doing her best to try to help. Obviously didn't come together. Antony's satisfied that, yep, she is on our side. Don't worry about that. Her loyalty is uh, is sort of beyond question here. That's good. And once that's cleared up, Antony begins to bolster her position in return, right, by doing a number of things. Firstly, officially recognizing young Caesarian or Ptolemy the 15th as the official Roman-backed co-ruler of Egypt, which is important to secure Cleopatra's legitimacy in Egypt, because again, all of that nonsense about needing a male co-ruler, even if he's, you know, only just learning how to bloody walk, it's fine, whatever. Uh, so that's that's an important step. But it gets even better for our Matt Cleopatra here, because Remember that governor that I talked about, the one who had betrayed her? Antony handed him over to Cleopatra to face punishment, and even better, agreed to execute one of her sisters who had fled Alexandria, had been hiding in the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, episodes 111, 112, get across them. And she was another potential threat to Cleopatra's rule, you know, another uh, another sign of the uh, of the Ptolemaic dynasty and Antony just agrees to execute her then and there just like that to make sure that Cleopatra was uh, was going to remain unchallenged in in Egypt and I mean look, I don't even know how much of a worry the sister was at this point it just seems like Cleopatra enjoyed having her siblings killed so I don't know what was going on there. Anyway, she's dead. And Cleopatra and Mark Antony on top of all of these sort of favors they're doing for each other here, they seem to get on quite well very well in fact and once they're finished up in tarsos cleopatra actually invites antony back to egypt with her in 41 bce and antony gladly accepts the invitation sails over across the mediterranean back down to alexandria i mean he'd been there a couple of times in the past most notably with caesar back when ptolemy the 13th had had pompey killed but this time around, he got a much better reception than he did when he turned up with old jewels. And the reason for that is the people in Alexandria were, turns out, a lot happier about a you know Roman ruler coming and visiting them when he didn't bring thousands of occupying troops with him and he was there at, his, at their queen's behest. So this time around, he has a much, much greater time than he did last time in terms of you know, just being on side with people and, uh, and enjoying a, a good level of, uh, of popular support. And on top of this, Cleopatra once again, throws huge feasts and parties for Mark Antony, and the two of them, they settle in quite comfortably indeed. Big chillin' in uh, in Alexandria there, Cleopatra, Antony hanging out, having a good time, and uh, look, you know, they did a lot more than just chill as well because they kept themselves quite busy. Uh, according to Plutarch, Cleopatra got stuck in with Mark Antony and his mates, you know, getting on the source, going hunting, gambling, taking part in all of these... Uh, you know, traditionally masculine activities, going up military exercises, whatever else. Cleopatra managed to ingratiate herself with Antony and, and, and his sort of uh, entourage quite effectively indeed. And then on top of that, there was just a whole lot of rooting. Like these two, these two were that bloody keen on each other, having a great time. Couldn't keep, couldn't keep their hands off each other, it seems, at this, uh, at this point in time. So as we head into 40 BCE, right, they, you know, bloody... You go. You visit the palace at Alexandria. You hear in bloody ancient Barry Manilow on in the background. They're shagging like there's no tomorrow. A couple of horny teenagers they are, and uh, eventually, as it happens, there is no tomorrow because Antony 
couldn't stick around forever. And a few months into 40 BCE, he has to head off. He's had a great time, little holiday in Egypt, hanging out with Cleopatra. But ultimately, he does have to leave. And you'll never believe what he left behind with Cleopatra. Once again, he headed off to deal with whatever pressing military concerns he had, leaving Cleopatra behind in Egypt. Pregnant. Just like old Julius Caesar had, Antony left a pregnant queen behind. And in late 40 BCE, Cleopatra, long after Antony has left, she gave birth to twins who she named Cleopatra, very original, and Alexander. Actually, a bit of originality there from Cleopatra. I mean, I thought we were going to have another Ptolemy. Why not? It's a you know perfectly serviceable name. There's been hundreds of them already. Why not one more? But no, Alexander named, after, uh, named of course, after Alexander the Great. Anyway, Antony openly acknowledged these twins uh, as his children. Uh, he didn't meet them for many years until he and Cleopatra were reunited a couple of years later in, uh, in 37 BCE. And in the meantime, after having these two kids, Cleopatra once again got on with the business of ruling her realm as the undisputed sole ruler of Egypt. In late 40 BCE, she had a visit from Herod the Great, who was fleeing from Judea, uh, where he had he'd ruled until some recent political turmoil had turfed him out. Uh, and Cleopatra was very he- uh, pleased to hear this. Herod was something of a rival, if you want to look at it in those terms, to Cleopatra in the sense that he was also another regional leader under the under the broad umbrella of, uh, of of Roman influence. So Cleopatra was quite pleased that that Herod was uh, was on the run because she had her eye on parts of Judea. Parts of this uh, this realm had used to belong to the Ptolemies years ago, and so she's eyeing them off again, thinking, "Hello, I could be in here, grab some of them off, you know, these blokes in Judea while they're busy, especially while I'm in with Mark Antony like this." Um, but interestingly, her relationship with Mark Antony it worsened. A little bit between 39 and 37 BCE, when Mark Antony he took a new wife. He'd been married to a woman named Fulvia, but she died in 40 BCE. And when Mark Antony remarried, it was to someone very important and, and someone that you know ended up putting a bit of a strain on the uh, on the on the relationship between him and Cleopatra because he married Octavia. He married the sister of Octavian, his fellow Triumvir, right? So. Octavian and Antony hadn't been getting on very well. Uh, they'd been sort of scrapping and fighting, and, and and you know there was a bit of disagreement between the two because obviously they're political rivals. As, as much as you can be a political rival with a political technically ally because they are in this triumvirate together, but you know they do have competing ambitions and, and goals. And as a result, this marriage is designed to bring them closer together because now they you know they're brothers-in-law. So it was designed to stop the true the two triumvirs from stop them from fighting, get a little bit closer. But what it ends up doing is putting a bit of a wedge between Cleopatra and Antony, as you might expect, especially when Octavia gave birth to twins of her own. Bloody Mark Antony's like a sailor here. He's got a family in every port by the sounds of things. But hey, look, whatever. Cleopatra, she's still got a kingdom to rule. She's got kids to raise. And she does both as the years pass. And broadly speaking, from an internal standpoint, things are are pretty good for her. You know, never going to be perfect, but she does a good job ruling, uh, ruling her kingdom. And, uh, you know, doesn't have to deal with any pretenders to the throne. They're all dead. No real threats to her rule. And things like the unstable situation in Judea are only good for her as a potential way to snag some extra land for herself, which is exactly what comes to pass in 37 BCE. Antony summoned Cleopatra to Antioch to figure out the situation with Herod and his kingdom because that's still going on. There's all these conflict and difficulty going on in, uh, in that part of the world in Judea at this point. And so Antony summoned Cleopatra to, uh, well, first of all, deal with the situation uh, with Herod in his kingdom, as well as seek her support for a campaign further, uh, further east into Parthia. So Cleopatra, she goes, yep, no worries, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll sail over, I'll cruise over and I'll see you soon. She sailed across the Mediterranean to meet him, bringing, this time, bringing, you know, his kids with her, the kids that they had together. And it was there in Antioch in 37 BCE that little Cleopatra and Alexander, they meet their old man for the first time. Now, Antony and Cleopatra, they give their kids surnames, Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene, which is quite sweet. They're the the Greek words for sun and and moon, respectively. So it's Alexander Sun and Cleopatra Moon, which I think is actually quite, quite cute there. But look, the two of them, uh, that's Antony and Cleopatra, immediately seem to have agreed to treat the the last couple of years as water under the bridge and they go back 
exactly back to the horny teenager routine. They are back to rooting like uh, like you wouldn't believe. So renewing her closeness with Anthony, you know, obviously from a personal standpoint, obviously was, I'm sure it made Cleopatra very happy, but from a political standpoint, it put her right back up on top here because what she's what she's ended up to secure her with, you know, by by renewing her uh, her connection with Anthony here is a huge amount of political dividends. Uh, as, as Cleopatra was over there in the midst of this uh, the, the turmoil that was going on in the Kingdom of Judea, Antony, in, in an attempt to try to stabilise this situation with Herod and Judea, Antony gave her a tonne of land. Now, obviously, this is all still under the banner of Rome, but as a client queen, Cleopatra's realm expanded enormously as she was given new territory across modern Israel and Palestine and Lebanon and Jordan. And, and Antony, in doing this, was attempting, as I say, to stabilise the region under a leader who had proven that she knew how to take care of business, right? This was designed to, to put uh, other uh, certain sections of the map under a leader who had a proven track record as a stable and dependable, reliable leader. And it went further than this. You know, Antony gave her Cyrene in Libya, in modern-day Libya, parts of Crete, so she's kicking goals with both feet. Egypt is back in business, baby. Get just paint the map up and down the uh, the Mediterranean, having a great time. And uh, you know, one good turn deserves another. Cleopatra has been chopped out this big favour by Mark Antony. So what does she give in return? Well, she agrees to fully support Antony with his plans to invade the invade the Parthian Empire further out into the Middle East. And she actually even came with him as the campaign began. She you know ordered her troops and whatever else to join up with the Romans and. Uh, uh, and support Antony in his efforts further out uh, out east, and she cruises along with Antony for a while, uh, you know, to sort of see him off as he goes off to fight in Parthia, uh, and then eventually, uh, after cruising up the Euphrates River for a while, you know, once he headed off to fight, uh, she went around to she went around touring some of her new acquisitions. The two of them, you know, they were as close as ever, despite the years that they'd spent apart. Uh, and so they they share a, a you know presumably tearful goodbye on the on the banks of the Euphrates somewhere as he sails off to war and she she heads off to um you know check out all the uh, she's pregnant again by the way probably should mention that he's uh you know they've 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 been very busy and uh, it won't be long before she's having another kid but they say goodbye in 36 BCE Cleopatra as I say spent, spent some time touring her new acquisitions she didn't interfere too much in their day-to-day -day government uh, governance just left it to local Roman authorities but still made herself known to her new subjects and made them made sure that they knew that you know she was the queen but she of course couldn't stick around uh, on this tour for forever because towards the middle of 36 BCE she had to head home to Egypt and for a very good reason her pregnancy she returned to Egypt to give birth to another son who she named. I mean, look, I, I, you know, look. I know it was a long time ago, and I know they probably didn't have as many names as we do now. But this other son was also called Ptolemy. I mean, how many names are there, right? You've got one son called Ptolemy, another one called Alexander. Oh, geez, well, we've used both names. I guess, I guess it's back to Ptolemy for the for the third son. I don't know what's going on. Look, maybe I'll just call all my kids Riley. You know, like ancient kings and queens did. What a great name! Very powerful. Works for all genders. Bit confusing at the dinner table, sure, but whatever. Anyway, Cleopatra. She now got four kids, three of whom she's had with Mark Antony. Uh, and while she's you know fine and safe and sound in Egypt, having a great time once again, Antony. He's not doing so well. I mentioned before that he and Octavian, they didn't get on too well. And let me tell you this, Octavian is not pleased that Antony is going about, one, cheating on Octavia, his sister. I mean, that's just one one piece of the puzzle here. Octavian makes a big, big fuss about how, you know, he goes around telling everyone how perfect and virtuous his sister is and how Antony's a dirty dog having affairs like this. I mean, Octavian himself is also having affairs, but you know, don't worry about that. Just focus on Antony. But on top of this, right, this is just, that was just one side of it, as I say. The second part is that Octavian uses Antony giving all this land to Cleopatra to further his own political purposes. He starts going about saying Antony is weakening Rome's position by handing territory to this foreign queen and strengthening Egypt as one of the most powerful vassals within the, uh, the, the you know, sphere of Roman influence. And to cap it all off, Antony's Parthian campaign is an unmitigated disaster. And he ended up needing Cleopatra to bail him out, sending supplies and money in order to get his troops out of the region safely. So Antony's having a terrible time. He's under siege on a personal level because he's, you know, Octavian's attacking him for, for having an affair, uh, you know, cheating on his sister. He's having a terrible time, politically speaking, 
because Octavian is pointing out that this bloke is de- potentially destabilizing the rule of Rome by empowering uh, Cleopatra. And if Cleopatra were to rise up against Rome because she's been given all this new territory, maybe she'd succeed. And then he's also suffering militarily because his his Parthian campaign was, as I say, this unmitigated dis- un- unmitigated disaster. So Antony, he needs to head back somewhere safe and lick his wounds. And where does he choose? Did you guess Alexandria? Because yes, you are correct. He returns to Egypt with Cleopatra. He met his new son, Ptolemy Philadelphus Antonius. And uh, with all this conflict brewing with Octavian, he needed a safe haven, needed somewhere to rally, rest and recuperate. And he really seemed to double down with Cleopatra, despite being, you know, married to Octavia, the, the sister of his primary political antagonist, Octavian. Antony really decides to plant his flag in Egypt and say, no, listen, you know, Cleopatra's the one for me. And, and, and this is where I'm going to, uh, this, this is the hill that I'm going to die on here. And in the meantime, in response to what uh, what Antony's doing here, you can kind of tell that these two blokes are. I mean, it, it, they're gearing up for war. Ultimately, they they both see they both know what's coming. Octavian he shores up his position out further west, removing his rivals or other who might have, others might have stood in his way, including poor old Lepidus. Remember him, the third triumvir, the spare part. He ended up under house arrest, sitting around you know doing absolutely nothing, uh, as this showdown between Octavian and and, and Mark Antony loomed. But Cleopatra, she's back in Antony. And look, why wouldn't she? Why bloody wouldn't she? He had helped to secure her position as pharaoh. He had expanded her realm enormously. And don't forget, she'd had three kids with the bloke. So Antony stuck around in Alexandria by Cleopatra's side, under her protection, more or less, as the tension between Octavian and Antony ratcheted up over the years. Now, we all know how much Cleopatra loved to put on a show. And in 34 BCE, that's exactly what she did with Antony. Bit of political posturing here, a bit of a, a, bit of a, a, bit of a performance that the two of them put on. They got together and staged a political demonstration called the Donations of Alexandria. And what this involved was Cleopatra dressing herself up all fancy, declaring herself the Queen of Queens and her son Caesarion as the King of Kings, and then she dressed up the kids that she would had with Antony in these little traditional royal outfits, declared that Alexander was the king of Armenia and Parthia. Little Ptolemy, not Caesarian, the other Ptolemy, uh, was announced as the king of Syria and Sicilia. And then, I mean, there's a bit of uncertainty about this next bit. It may have happened, it may not have happened. But then, as part of these royal and lav- lavish celebrations, making a big fuss and song and dance, Cleopatra and Mark Antony may have even gotten married themselves. And, you know... Bit of an issue here because Antony already has a wife in Octavia, but no, no, don't worry about that. If these two got married at this point, Mark Antony only added fuel to the fire with a huge, big display of uh, you know of, of his connection and, and and his political strength, I guess, alongside Cleopatra in Egypt, and it added fuel to the fire, as I say, with his conflict with Octavian. Cleopatra, she's busy bloody minting coins that depict her and Ant- Antony like a classical Hellenistic royal couple. And Octavian, he responds to this by going around just bagging him out, just bagging him out like nobody's business, talking about how it was an unlawful marriage because Antony was still married to Octavia, how Antony was treating Caesarian like he was the, the heir of Caesar, not you know Octavian, rather than Octavian being the heir of Caesar, as, as Caesar put in his will. Uh, and Antony hit back. He wasn't taking these insults lying down. He's told everyone how Octavian had illegally removed Lepidus from the triumvirate, put him under house arrest. He shared details about Octavian's sex life, which seems to have been pretty bloody wild. Uh, but look, fair to say, the two of them, they're arcing up. They're having a go at each other. They are really abandoning all pretense of uh, friendship and allegiance at this point. But that's not all. Because it's not just uh, it's not just Antony that Octavian comes after. He also starts to come after Cleopatra. And this is very important because it's the, it's Octavian's enmity with Cleopatra that ended up with her gaining the political and historical legacy that uh, you know that we, we discussed a little bit last week. Remember how I said that Cleopatra went down in history as this wiling, this wily, corrupting seductress? Well, it wasn't just her affair with Caesar that got it such a bad reputation. Really, it was what happened with Antony and her opposition to Octavian, right? Romans both at the time and afterwards, picked up and ran with this story about how Cleopatra was, you know, I don't know, a witch and a sorceress ensnaring men like Antony and, and, and Julius Caesar and magically magically influencing them to, to, to do her bidding. She was portrayed as this cunning, underhanded temptress, ensorcellating Antony with, the, with ambitious dreams of, of toppling Rome itself. And 
honestly, nothing has changed from then till now. People love gossip. They love drama. They love sordid tales of sex and intrigue and betrayal. And so Cleopatra gained this reputation that today historians are still attempting to shake off of her. Again, because mostly of the propaganda, the Roman propaganda against her at the time. It's been around for centuries, for millennia. Yeah. There is no way that Octavian and Antony are going to come to terms. There's no way. And in 32 BCE, their conflict had heated up further. It had been a war of words, but now it looks like it's going to be a war of, like, I don't know, weapons and swords and blood and guts, obviously. I mean, that's that's just the, that, that's the natural ending point for a conflict like this. Antony came out publicly and said that Caesarian was the true heir of Julius Caesar after all. Once again, plants another flag in uh, in, in in Egypt, saying that it is Cleopatra's son who is the true son, the true heir of Julius Caesar. Uh, this is obviously in an attempt to destabilize Octavian. The divide between the two blokes is wider than ever at this point. Uh, the triumvirate has expired. The two still had legions of loyal followers, and after Octavian marched into the Roman Senate uh, with armed guards, around forty percent of the senators responded by leaving. They left Rome, they travelled to Alexandria, they set up shop in the new Roman Senate that Antony had established there, again, in opposition to Octavian. And as I say, both Octavian and Antony had plenty of followers, plenty of supporters by their sides, but Antony was essentially completely reliant on Cleopatra, militarily speaking. Because it was Octavian that controlled the west half of the uh, of uh, of Rome. He was based in the city of Rome itself. He had... Uh, a fair bit of military support under his belt, whereas Antony is reliant on the strength and the might of Egypt, particularly militarily. And so he and Cleopatra, uh, you know, are essentially a political unit at this point. Cleopatra, she was in charge. She can, she commanded the might of Egypt, its armies, its navies, and and without that, Antony would never have been able to contest Octavian. And Cleopatra, to her credit, she insisted on being involved in the brewing war against Octavian. She said that she would sail with her soldiers wherever they went. And when Antony made it clear that Cleopatra had just as much right to be in the war room as any of the other any of the other monarchs that had, had, he had summoned to help him, some of his followers actually defected. They were so unhappy with a woman being involved in the military planning and and you know the, the strategic side of this conflict that they actually bailed and went and fought for Octavian instead, which is a great shame because, again, Cleopatra not only is one of the most powerful monarchs under the Roman sphere of influence, but also a a very talented and very able leader. So they really shot themselves in the foot by backing away there. Decades of effective independent rule still wasn't enough to convince these idiots that, you know, she, as a woman, could hold her own in a political and, and military crisis like this. So utterly ridiculous. Anyway, the crisis, obviously, it only gets worse. It escalates further and further. In that same year, 32 BCE, Antony publicly and officially declared his divorce from Octavia. In response, Octavian seized Antony's will from the Vestal Virgins. He grabbed it by force, which was not only very illegal, but also highly sacrilegious. But he did it anyway, whatever. And he he held a a public reading of selected parts of Antony's will, things like you know, how uh, how um, Antony wanted to be buried in Alexandria alongside Cleopatra, how he wanted to move the capital of Rome to Alexandria. Needless to say, this put a lot of the Roman public offside from Antony. They didn't like this bloke and what he was doing. Again, it fed into this propaganda that uh, Octavian was putting out about him being ensorcellated by this, uh, this evil temptress Cleopatra. And uh, this was ultimately what finally pushed Octavian over the edge to declare war, right? He had popular support. He had a Cassus Belli in uh, in Antony's perceived treason. But more importantly than this, right, he had a way to destabilise and, uh, I guess, undermine the power that Cleopatra had. Antony is a figurehead of, of Roman power in Egypt, so well and good, but... It is Cleopatra who holds the purse strings. It is Cleopatra who is the one in charge of these Egyptian armies. And Octavian knows that he has to take her out of the equation. And so he declares war not on Antony, but on Cleopatra. Two reasons for this. Firstly, Antony didn't hold any public office anymore. Octavian had been elected consul since then. then. But Cleopatra was providing military support to effectively a private Roman citizen, which was enough for Octavian to declare war. And secondly, the other thing that Octavian wanted to secure here, as well as all the other stuff that I've mentioned, Octavian was the heir of Caesar. He had inherited Caesar's accounts. Uh, Ptolemy XII had owed Julius Caesar a lot of money. Cleopatra 
as a result, as the descendant of, of, of Ptolemy the Twelfth, now owed Octavian a lot of money as the heir of Julius Caesar. So these are the reasons that he used to declare war on Cleopatra in addition to wanting to knock her out, take her out of the equation, and of course, you know, seize the the, the wealth, the riches of Egypt for himself and neutralize the, uh, the military power that Egypt had at this point. So military conflict now, this inescapable end that really did seem to, you know, it was, it was a long time coming. Military conflict is finally upon them and Antony and Cleopatra have to begin to fight Octavian. The interesting thing is, these two had a numerical advantage over Octavian. Octavian had a smaller total number of troops and sailors and, and whatever else. However, the troops and the personnel that he did have were of a much higher quality, particularly his navy. Octavian's navy was a professional, trained fighting force, whereas Cleopatra's, it was larger, certainly, but it included merchant ships. It included sailors that had never seen battle. So, From the outset of this conflict, it's difficult to say exactly who has a better position. But irrespective of this, Cleopatra and Antony, they sailed their navy north. They sailed to Greece from where they sought to challenge Octavian at sea and keep him and his forces away from Egypt. Unfortunately, however, with, you know, with the war underway, with the forces gathered for fighting, with the ships sailing off, it only got worse from there. There were more defections to Octavian. Other client kings switched sides or just refused to come. Remember old mate Herod back in Judea? He said he was too busy. There'd been an earthquake, he said, and he he couldn't come and lend a hand. And as we move into 31 BCE, Cleopatra and Antony's position, it ends up not being a great one. They've lost a fair few skirmishes with Octavian on top of all the other stuff that's gone against them. And so in this fight that has been a long time coming, it seems like Octavian has the upper hand. And it all finally came a gutsa on the 2nd of September, 31 BCE, at the decisive Battle of Actium, which Cleopatra and Antony lost. And they lost quite bloody badly too. This engagement was overwhelmingly successful for Octavian as his navy ripped through the oppositions. And, I mean, I'm not, I'm not too pleased to say that Cleopatra and Antony when they realized the battle was lost, even before it was over, when they realized it was lost, they fled. They boarded uh, Cleopatra's ship and they ran away from the battle while, you know, while it was still being fought. Not a good look. And Octavian's ranks swelled as a result as they saw the, the purple-sailed ship of Cleopatra fleeing the battle. A lot of people switched sides immediately, came over to Octavian and uh, as his ranks swelled, as all of these uh, these generals and, and, and admirals defected to him, you know, both during and after the battle, his position in the war, in the conflict here, became all the more insurmountable for Cleopatra and Antony, who headed back to Egypt. Antony went off to Cyrene to try to gather more troops, while Cleopatra went to Alexandria to try to spin act him as anything other than a, a total and complete disaster. But... That's what it was. It was a disaster, a total disaster. And today, I mean, this battle is actually a very important historical marker because it is used by many historians to to delineate the end of the Hellenistic period. When, you know, this period during which Greek culture and influence was at its peak across a large part of the world. In, in years, the Hellenistic period refers to the period of time between the rise of Alexander the Great in 323 BC and the fall of the very last Hellenistic kingdom, which of course was Ptolemaic Egypt in 31 BCE, when it failed to stand up to the might of Octavian during the Battle of Actium. And, and the Battle of Actium is considered by many to be the end of the Hellenistic period. Certainly there's some disagreement there. You can say that it lasted a little bit longer or, you know, you can you can make an argument in, in many different ways. But broadly speaking, the Hellenistic period, this period of, 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 of Greek dominance across much of the world came to an end with the fall of the very last Hellenistic kingdom, that of Ptolemaic Egypt under the leadership of, of Cleopatra. Because Cleopatra's defeated Actium, Actium, it signaled the end of a historical era. The power and the influence that the Greeks had in this part of the world, it had finally at long last come to an end, even though we've still got some cleaning up to do with this story. Back in Egypt, Antony ended up withdrawing completely. He realized that he, the, 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 the battle was, the war was effectively lost. He withdrew uh, to a little hut near the, the lighthouse of Alexandria. While Cleopatra attempted when she realized that the battle was lost and the war was lost, she attempted to negotiate with Octavian, but ultimately that came to nothing. She was attempting to negotiate to 
you know, send Antony into exile, uh, have her children inherit Egypt. But, uh, you know, she, she attempted to buy Octavian off. She sent him rich gifts of gold, but it all came to nothing. It was no good. Octavian considered Antony too much of a threat to his power to let live, while Cleopatra and particularly her son Caesarian, don't forget the son of Julius Caesar, they were too much of a, of a risk to leave in power. And so the next year in 30 BCE, Octavian staged an invasion of Egypt to seal the fate of the Ptolemaic kingdom once and for all. He had a huge numerical advantage by, by now, of course. It wasn't a close thing. He had many more followers and supporters than Antony, including, of all people, bloody Herod of Judea. The earthquake's finally over. Finally going to have his revenge upon Cleopatra for that land that was nicked off of him uh, years ago. And Octavian's conquest of Egypt, it was swift and it was unrelenting, and before long, he had surrounded Alexandria. Cleopatra, realising that all was lost, she hid in her tomb with her entourage and made ready to end her life. She wasn't going to be taken alive by Octavian. This Roman tradition to stage a triumph for, you know, through the city after a, after a massive military victory usually involved parading prisoners in chains through the streets of Rome, and as much as she loved a parade, Cleopatra was far too proud to be the victim of someone else's, and so she made preparations to take her own life. She intended to burn herself alive in her tomb with all of her treasures, and so none of it, including herself, would fall into Roman hands. And before she went through with it, she sent a message to Antony telling him that she'd killed herself. And here's where it gets really tragic, because Antony received this message before she died and attempted to commit suicide himself after learning what he thought had happened to Cleopatra. He stabbed himself in the stomach, and as he was dying, he was brought to Cleopatra's tomb, where she was there still alive. I mean, bloody ripping off Shakespeare here and having the nerve to do it one and a half thousand years before he was even born. An absolutely tragic scene between these two. But poor old Antony, his wounds were that great that he did die. He died in Cleopatra's tomb. And Cleopatra once again made ready to follow suit. But she had delayed so long because of Antony that by this stage, the Romans had twigged as to what she was doing and they barged into her tomb to stop her from committing suicide. They did let her bury Antony properly inside her tomb, but then they marched her to face Octavian, who had, to add insult to injury, set up shop in her old palace. In this palace, even worse... He had her three kids, the three kids that she'd had with Antony. He was holding them hostage. And so any hope to negotiate for Cleopatra was absolutely futile. She did not have any cards left to play. Their meeting was not a friendly one. Cleopatra told Octavian that I will not be let in triumph. That is a direct quote, apparently, that was written down, has been passed down, a, a rare direct quote from Cleopatra herself. But Octavian, look, he made no promises other than she would, her life would be spared uh, Octavian didn't give her any guarantees. He was very vague about what was going to happen to Cleopatra uh, and, and to Egypt as well. Now that he'd effectively won the war against her, he, he made no promises whatsoever as to what was going to happen to her realm and its inheritance and her kids and all the rest of it. All he did, all he said was that she would not be killed. He guaranteed her, she, he, he promised her her life at least. But he did not promise what kind of life it would be, one of a prisoner, one of an exile, or what. And so this desperate, desperate situation for poor old Cleopatra, think of it, her kids are in the hands of Octavian, her kingdom has been lost, and worst of all, her, her dignity was going to be torn to shreds as she was paraded through Rome as a prisoner during uh, you know, the next Octavian triumph here. So after this, after this meeting, the, the desperate nature of her situation was made even worse when a spy snuck into Cleopatra uh, into where she was into her chambers and confirmed that Octavian was planning to take her to Rome for a triumph. And so after this, after learning this, she renewed her determination to go on her own terms. She ordered her eldest son, Caesarian, who's now 17 years old at this point, he ordered, uh, she ordered him to flee, to flee up the Nile away from Alexandria. And then she took her two closest servants with her and prepared to end her own life. Now, we don't know if she managed to escape, to the, uh, escape from the palace and get back to her tomb to do it. But we do know, irrespective of where it took place, we do know that on the 10th of August in 30 BCE, at the age of 39, Cleopatra VII, Philopator, took her own life and brought an end to one of the most fascinating monarchical reigns in ancient history. But 
You're all wanting to know, how did she do it? That's the question. The famous story is, of course, that she allowed herself to be bitten by a snake. An asp is the usual telling. But honestly, this doesn't quite add up. The story goes that she had the snake smuggled into, uh, into her chambers or into her tomb in a basket of figs, which would have been very difficult given the size of an Egyptian cobra. It would have had to have been a very bloody big basket. But on top of that, it's unlikely that the snake would have been able to kill three adult women uh, because Cleopatra's servants also went, went with her to death. Uh, it's very likely the snake would have been able to kill three adult women in a timely fashion. So what's much more likely, what the, the, the broad consensus between historians today is that she injected some kind of poison into her body with the use of a needle or a hairpin. But whatever it was, it was effective and Cleopatra's life came to an end on her own terms. There is still some debate about the exact circumstances. Some put forward the theory that Octavian allowed her to do this, spared her the indignity of a triumph in Rome. Others say that Octavian was furious that he wasn't, you know, he wasn't able to parade his star prisoner through the streets of Rome. But to Octavian's credit, rather than maybe drag her corpse back to Rome and parade that through the streets uh, of the city, he instead allowed her body to be buried alongside Mark Antony's in this tomb, and so she was finally laid to rest, and her reign came to an end. But with Cleopatra dead, there was very little standing in the way of Octavian from taking total control of Egypt, and that's what he did. Really, the only thing potentially stopping him was Caesarian, who, as Ptolemy XV, was technically still the pharaoh of Ptolemaic Egypt. However, Octavian wasn't going to leave that loose end. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't going to leave anything to chance. And, and after having been advised by one of his mentors, a bloke named Arius Didymus, he, who said, it is not good to have too many Caesars, um, which is actually a very clever line. It doesn't re- it's kind of wasted on us tra- being translated into English, but uh, it's actually a very clever line in ancient Greek. It's a pun on something that Homer wrote, but again, yet yeah, lost on us Philistines here 2,000 years later. Anyway, this bloke, Arius Didymus, he told Octavian essentially to give Caesarian the old, you know, this town ain't big enough, uh, big enough for the both of us, because as Caesar's son, Caesarian did pose a potential threat to Octavian. Now, I don't know exactly what happened. The, the accounts are a little contradictory, but Caesarian either fled Alexandria and then was lured back to the city with a promise from Octavian that he, he might be able to rule, or he never left off, uh, never never left Alexandria in the first place. But whatever the case was, Octavian had Caesarian executed, many say by strangulation, uh, just a few weeks after Cleopatra's death. And with the death of Caesarian, there was no one to stand in Octavian's way whatsoever. Remember, he was holding the other kids hostage, and they were only young anyway. They're not going to be able to stand up to Octavian. And so he effectively annexes Egypt for himself. It's taken as his personal fiefdom, more or less, uh, once Caesarian is out of the way. Uh, as for the other children, I mean, you know, you, you might be wondering what happened to them. The ones, the, the ones that Cleopatra had with Mark Antony, they were taken back to Rome by Octavian, and it was they who were paraded through the city rather than their mother. It was they who were paraded around Rome in his triumph, and then in one final act of, I don't even know what cruelty or pragmatism or just straight up weirdness, Octavian gave the three orphans over to. Can you guess? Octavia, Octavian's sister. He gave them over to his sister, Antony's former wife, who raised them. So Octavia raised the children that her ex-husband had had with Cleopatra. And the two sons fell off the face of the earth. We don't know what happened. They may have died young, potentially of illness, or who knows. But uh, the daughter went on to marry a a king and and ended up having a, a reasonably prosperous life. But that was that for not only Cleopatra's line, but the line of Ptolemaic kings that had ruled Egypt for the last three decades after becoming a formal and official possession of Rome. Uh, Egypt later passed to the Byzantine Empire after the fall of Rome and then ultimately was conquered during the 7th century CE uh, during the Muslim conquest of Egypt. But back in the time of Octavian, he wasn't satisfied with the triumphs that he'd scored in Egypt. No, no. Within three years after, you know, continuing to amass and consolidate his power, he had seized total control of Rome and all of its provinces. 
Rome was transformed from a republic into an empire under Octavian, who of course, as you may know, took a new name. The one that he is better known as to history, Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor who would go on to rule his new empire for the next four decades. And so now you see the importance of the rule of Cleopatra as one of the last Ptolemaic pharaohs, and you see her role in the fall of the Roman Republic and the rise of the Roman Empire. Cleopatra was not only herself an immensely powerful and important leader, both politically and militarily, but she rubbed shoulders with some of the other most powerful and important leaders of the time. And with two of them, she rubbed a lot more than shoulders, causing her to be inextricably wound into the, into the tail and the fate of the late Roman Republic and the rise of Augustus and his empire. Because of the triumph of Augustus and because of his enmity with Cleopatra, history has not been kind to her. She's been slandered and insulted, painted as a manipulative seductress or even a sorceress over thousands of years. But today, we have a more rounded view of Cleopatra as a dedicated and largely successful leader, one with a love of grandeur and opulence, an ambitious and determined woman who fought through setbacks and obstacles, both internal and external, in order to take control of the realm that she was born to rule. She was someone who used her diplomatic charm alongside her ruthless pragmatism to guide Egypt through impossibly turbulent times before it finally fell to the unstoppable might of Rome. And today, I encourage you to look past the hundreds of years of Roman-inspired disinformation that surrounds her legacy and instead remember her as the leader she was. Proud, determined, ambitious, highly capable, and beyond everything else, human. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is at long last the end of the story of Cleopatra and uh, really an absolutely fascinating and and very illuminating story for me to research. Uh, You know, I've talked recently in recent episodes about how we are going to try to mix some more serious topics like this one, you know, some longer, some deeper dives on on more serious things in. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot from from doing this in-depth research about, about Cleopatra, basic stuff like, she wasn't Egyptian, she was Greek, but, you know, getting a clearer picture of, of the life and times of this woman and the influence she had in shaping the ancient world at this very turbulent and, and unstable point in history, absolutely fascinating to think about the way that her actions and her decisions influenced something like, you know, the, the fall of, of Rome. And I'm not saying she caused it by any means, but certainly she had a big role in developing uh, the early stages of the, um, of the Roman Empire with uh, with what happened with Antony and Octavian, and even earlier on, you know, her her connection with Julius Caesar, the fact that uh, she bore Julius Caesar a son, and how differently that could have gone if Caesarian's path in history had been uh, had been a little different. But a fascinating, a really interesting story to get across, and I do hope you enjoyed it. Of course, in the coming weeks and months, there'll be more of the nonsense you love from Half Earth History, but certainly more of the of the more serious topics like this one where we go a little deeper on something um you know or or on someone uh that has had a big impact in history and so we'll we'll find a nice balance between the more serious ones and the silly ones but if you've got a topic suggestion that is either serious or silly i want to hear it i've got a, a nice long, a big long list of them but more come in every day and i'm very thankful to the people that get in touch i read every single suggestion that's given to me and uh, when it comes to the shorter ones that aren't going to make a full episode i've got them in the back pocket because we'll probably do a little compilation uh in the next couple of weeks as well of of, of some of the shorter topic suggestions that aren't going to pad out an entire episode so thank you to everyone who's writing in of course if you want to do the same the best place to get in touch with the show halfhousehistory.net there's a contact form there uh, and all the other normal stuff i mentioned every week the merch shop can be found at halfhousehistory.net as well uh, and if you want to support the show uh, directly patreon.com slash halfhousehistory access to episodes ahead of time behind the scenes stuff whatever else you all know the drill you've all heard this a thousand well not a thousand times you've heard this what 191 times i don't know i'm maybe you, maybe this is the first outro you're listening to and I should be really, you know, geeing you up to go and support me on Patreon. Got to get that money. Got to get those dollars. 
Um, but no, look, thank you. Thank you to everyone who's listening, supporting in every way. Whether you're a, a new listener, an old listener, somewhere in between, whether you're a patron or someone who is just out there, you know, spreading the word of this podcast. Hey, thanks very much for being uh, for being a part of the uh, the nonsense that I talk every week. And uh, I'll see you back in next week, of course, for more nonsense uh, from Half House History. So, until then, leaving you, of course, with the question a question posed on Reddit here from a well, was more of a science based question, I guess. It's got to do with uh, Egypt, with Alexandria, the Library of Alexandria, famously found in Alexandria, uh, and Redditor Just Here for Hides has a good question, asking us, if the destruction of the Library of Alexandria set us back a thousand years, why don't we destroy more libraries as a means of time travel? <laughs>